All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. So I didn't realize when I labeled the sermon greatness that my name would be right next to there. So just so you know, there's no, there's no confusion in my mind. I'm not presuming greatness is me. So, but I think you'll see we get in the passage why we called it that. So, um, but it's great to be with you. I also thought before we get started, um, it'd be great. So Jacob is our, one of our worship leaders here. You know him. I just wanted to spotlight the people volunteering around him. So Hunter was playing the drums. Ty was playing the guitar. Uh, Will was on keyboard over there, and a guy named Kim was on the bass. So just so you know, there are two people running cameras for us today. Jane and Judy are back there. And uh, we had ushers today. That was Kurt and Grant and Aaron, although Aaron's a little bit of a slacker. But the other two guys are, <laughs> are spot on. So, um, and Dave is running sound for us in the back. And last hour, he was singing and worshiping, and that's pretty cool to have a sound guy that's not just turning the knobs, but he's worshiping God, so it fired me up. So anyway, that's some of the crew that helped serve us today, and I think you'll see uh, why it's important to acknowledge that, because uh, when Jesus is going to define greatness for us, he's going to make a link to how we serve, all right? So, but this whole conversation about who's the greatest in the world of sports, it's been on the headlines for the last couple of weeks. And we just had the Super Bowl and Tom Brady went once again and threw for over 500 yards. People are saying he's a goat. And if you don't know what that means, it means greatest of all time. But when I first heard goat, it's like, I thought we were talking about great, not bad, but, but no, he's greatest of all time. Is it him or is it Joe Montana, who never lost in a Super Bowl, whereas Tom Brady seems to lose a lot of Super Bowls, but this year wasn't his fault. So you got all those kind of things going on. Or with Winter Olympics, you've got, like, who's the greatest U.S. Winter Olympian of all time? Is it, like, one of our speed skaters, like Eric Hyden or Bonnie Blair, or figure skaters like Dorothy Hamill or Christy Yamaguchi or old-school Peggy Fleming? Like, is, how far back do you go? Or is it the 1980 hockey team? You know, so wh- who is the greatest Winter Olympian? So... Uh, who's the greatest is, is a big constant battle, it seems like, in, in our culture. And so today Jesus is going to teach us and teach his followers what true greatness really is. And um, let me just say, uh, it's not wrong to want to be great. Because I think, if anything, somebody who understands that we've been created by God, that we've been created in his image, that we've been given this life as a gift, as a chance like to live our life, we want to do well. We want to live this one life we've been given well. And so To want to do great with your life is not a bad thing. But what Jesus is going to show us is that there are two entirely different paths to greatness. There's one that is natural to us. There's one that our heart normally goes to. And there's one that we see in the world all around us. But what Jesus is going to call us to is a whole different path to greatness. It is totally against where you naturally go. It is totally against the default of your heart. And it's totally against what you'll see in the world around you. And you will not get to take that path unless Jesus takes you there. That's kind of the premise of the day. And so this is one of those life-changing, they're all life-changing passages, but I want to say especially this passage, that if you listen to what Jesus says, and if you apply it to your life, you will radically change your marriage, your friendships, your connection with this church, your involvement in this church, and your impact on our community. If you listen and apply what Jesus said, your life will be radically changed, all right? So let's pray, and you pray first. Could you just pray quietly where you are that Jesus would speak clearly to you? It is a great passage. I don't want to set you up that you can just coast into this and have your life changed. Could you pray that Jesus would speak to you, that you would listen, and that you would apply his words to your life? Could you ask that?
Jesus, we are in a privileged spot right now because we are gathered to learn from you. And this passage is going to lay out some amazing truth for us. Help us to listen and then help us to put it to practice. Help us trust you. And then I'm excited to see what you're going to do in my life and in the life of this church as we follow you and do what you say. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to start in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or swipe there, whatever you want to do. Mark 10, 32. And um, I'll just start reading for us. It says that they were on the road, this is Jesus and his disciples, going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn, condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So in the Gospel of Mark, from about chapter 9 forward, you see Jesus on a mission to go to Jerusalem. Like you already picked that up in our passage here that he is walking ahead of his disciples. Usually a rabbi and his disciples walk side by side and he would teach. But you get that, that sense that Jesus is in a hurry. There's an urgency. He's got to get to Jerusalem. And this is the first time that he told his guys the exact details of why. He's already given them a hint a couple different times of why he came, but now he is as specific as he has ever been, predicting the mocking, the spitting, the beating, and his death. But he also mentioned his resurrection. Okay, so so there's there's a big thing coming, and these guys can tell. They can tell. That's why it said they were afraid and they're just, they're amazed that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. That's where his opponents were. That's where um, Jesus knew the people that didn't like him were there, but he's heading square into opposition. Okay, so that's what's going on. You can sense the tension. So in the midst of that, it's almost comical if this wouldn't be so sad. Look at verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Oh, my goodness. Like, could you talk about, like, less tact? Like, Jesus has just opened up his heart, and they're kind of sitting there, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, Jesus. Like, we, we want you to do for us whatever we want. Like, were you guys even listening? Like, were you even around? Did you even see what Jesus just said, but yet there's something driving them that just caused them to not even hear what Jesus said. You would think it would be, oh, Jesus, what can we do to help you? Like, how could we serve you? How could we encourage you? We know this is hard, what's coming up. But instead, it's like, oh, 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 we want you to do for us whatever we want you to do. And so they are asking for the number one and number two seeds in his kingdom. They're thinking that he's going to Jerusalem. Yeah, and it might be a little bit tough, but they have seen his power. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him calm storms. They saw him at the transfiguration where his glory shone through. Like they saw all that. So I think James and John are thinking it's game on. Like Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Yeah, and it might be hard for a while, but he's going to win. He's going to set up his kingdom. And there we just need to be number one and number two. So there was an urgency there. We need that. And so there was just, just strong ambition for them to be great. They had to be recognized 
as there's Jesus, he's clearly, he's clearly the best, but we're just right there with him. Like, look how awesome we are. We're right next to Jesus. And so that's what's going on. And Jesus, verse 38, I'm incredible patience. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you, I mean, just for a minute, if Jesus was, if I was Jesus, I might have just slipped here and just like, didn't you guys hear what I just said? You're like, just, sorry, I shouldn't have, you know, but, but just he's so patient with these guys. And he says, don't you know what you're asking? You, you, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism which, which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So what James and John lacked intact they sure made up for it over confidence, okay? And Jesus is trying to like, he's trying to warn them, like, are you sure you guys can drink the cup? And are you sure you can be baptized? And those were kind of Old Testament references. The cup meant the holy wrath of God on sin. And Jesus is predicting, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die for the sins of the world there. Are you guys sure you can drink that cup? And when he referred to baptism, again, there were some Old Testament references to baptism, meaning like just being overwhelmed with, with like as you're overwhelmed, flooded with water, with adversity and hardship and suffering. He's saying, are you sure you guys are ready for that? And they go, yep, we are able, you know. And so uh, just a lot of, a lot of arrogance, a lot of ambition. And I would love to say that it was isolated with just James and John. But when you jump to verse 41, it says, and when the 10 heard it, remember there's 12 disciples. So the other 10 heard this and they began to be indignant of James and John. This wasn't an isolated, you know, two little guys are having an ego trip. Like this was the whole team. In fact, you might remember earlier, Jesus was walking ahead of them and he heard a conversation behind him. He goes, what were you guys talking about? And they got silent because they were arguing about who's the greatest. This was an ongoing debate. And unfortunately, this debate is going to carry all the way to the Last Supper. There's still going to be skirmishes about which disciple is better than the other. Okay, so there's, this, there's clearly a problem on Team Jesus. And so Jesus has had enough. He calls time out. He circles everybody up, and he begins to define for them what true greatness really is. Verse 42. So Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He's saying, guys, listen. Like, this is, this is going totally wrong. This is the third time Jesus has had to teach them this. They're clearly not getting it. But this is his clearest time to teach. That there will be a massive distinction between the way the world leads and the way that I'm going to have you lead if you're on my team. There's two totally different ways. And so he says there's, there's the way of the world you are well acquainted with. They were at that time under Roman rule, so they knew Roman leadership was all about title and position and using people and, and powering over on people. Jesus says you are, you are well acquainted with that way of leading and of being great. And that is not the way we are going to do it. We will not. He said, not so among you. Instead, we will lead by serving. We will lead by being servants. For us, greatness will be measured not by how many people can we power up on, but how many people can we serve. We will be like slaves. Our job will be to see a need and meet a need. 
It will not to be served, but it, our, our job will be to serve. And this made absolutely no sense to the disciples. It made, you know, oftentimes Jesus is teaching the 12, but there would have been other people most likely around too. Anybody hearing this would not have said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we, we get that. I mean, this is as, as out of the box for these people as when Jesus said that a camel could go through the eye of a needle. There is no way in that culture that you would think a slave or a servant was great. You would think that is horrible. Like that's the last thing I would want to be, that my life would be totally about just listening and doing and meeting the needs of other people. That, that's the lowest. Like I would never do that. And Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to be a slave and you're going to be a servant. That's what true greatness is. Completely, complete 180, okay? we were to wrap up right now and just close the Bibles and say, okay, let's go. Here's what I'd be really afraid of. Like, I think, first of all, some of us would just listen and go, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that and just go. But even some of us would say, okay, well, Jesus kind of said it, so it must make sense. So let's go do that. Like, I think what we would go and maybe leave today doing is just trying to do that on our own. Let's just try harder. Yeah, let's try to be servant-minded. Let's, even servant leadership is kind of a buzzword in, in the business culture today. Like, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's go, let's go be that. Let's go try harder and really be servant leaders. And the whole point is uh, that we can't, we can't do that. That's why we need the rest of this passage. If we were starting to verse, stop in verse 44, it would have been just kind of like a, a nice saying on the wall. You know, we will be servants of all. Oh, isn't that so cool? And then it won't happen, right? So for this to happen, we need the, ne- the rest of this passage. Verse 45 is one of the most loaded verses in the Bible. If you've not memorized Mark 10, 45, this is the crescendo of the whole gospel of Mark, okay? Let me just read it. You've probably heard it before. Let me just read it and just see how loaded this verse is. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is an awesome verse. Because Jesus up until now has predicted that he will die, but he has not told us yet why he's going to die. Here, he makes it crystal clear about why he is coming and why he must die. Let me just break apart again. This one verse is loaded with some amazing themes. The word son of man, maybe you've seen that a few times in Mark, that when Jesus is referring to himself, he calls himself the son of man. Write down this verse, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Um, When Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's referring back to a prophecy where the prophet Daniel looked ahead to a time when, and and most Jews who believe in the Old Testament thought, this is the Messiah and he's going to come. And it described this one coming and having glory and dominion and a kingdom that all the nations would serve him and that his dominion would be an everlasting dominion. So, so that is Jesus. And that's Jesus saying, I am the son of man. And it is true. All those things, I am coming to set up a kingdom. And there will be a day when every knee will bow, when all languages and tribes and peoples and nations will follow Jesus as Lord. But, but first he came to serve. There is a crown and a cross. And so that's the whole title of the Gospel of Mark. We've seen Jesus wearing the crown when he healed the dead, when he calmed the storm, when he spoke with authority. We saw that he's God. We saw his deity, right? But then we also now are seeing that Jesus came first to go to the cross, and then he's going to wear the crown. 
And so what he's exposing here, and this is our problem too, but what the disciples wanted is they wanted the crown without the cross. Like they just want to be great. They just want to like rule and be in charge. And Jesus says, on my team, it goes like this. There will be a crown, but first comes the cross. Okay, so the son of man came. That's a key, that's a loaded word here too. These little words, sometimes we just fly through. The son of man came. That was, this is his mission. This is why he left heaven. This is why he came to earth. This is, this is what sets Jesus apart from every other religious leader. No other religious leader came to die for the sins of the world. But Jesus said, this is my calling. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Let's clarify what that word ransom meant in Jesus' day. It was a price paid for a slave or for a prisoner of war. So ransom was not usually associated with any form of respectability. Like if you had to be ransomed, that, was, that meant you were in a sorry state. You were a slave. You were caught. You were a criminal. And you needed someone to set you free. You could not set yourself free. The theologian John Stott says, the ransom image is our sorry state. Indeed, in our captivity in sin, which made the act of divine rescue necessary. So we were bonded to sin. We couldn't set ourselves free from pride and selfish ambition. And Jesus had to come and die for us. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Another one of those little words is the word for. It means in place of, instead of. That Jesus died in our place. That when he gave his life on the cross, that should have been you and me on that cross, receiving what we deserve for our sins against a holy God. And yet Jesus died for us instead of us in our place. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for, and the last word is many, many. And that's awesome. I know many of you know this, and you've been set free by this. That is, that's awesome. I'm so, I, when I pray, a lot of, with my family, um, there's times where I just say, Jesus, thank you for dying for my family. Like, thank you for dying for people that I love. But I want to make sure that everybody this morning can at least know that you don't need to just put the word many in there. Can you put the word me in there? Not me, Doug, but you, me. Okay. Okay. So, so can you look at that and say, Jesus died for, for me. And that is the biggest takeaway this morning, that you are in big trouble apart from Jesus Christ. You need a ransom paid for you. You cannot escape um, a very a very selfish, self-focused, um, narrow, small-minded life. That's where we go apart from Jesus. That's, it's just, that's our default. That's the way of the Gentiles. That's the way of the Romans. That's the way of James and John. That's the way of Doug apart from Jesus is that we just go and live for ourselves. We have offended a holy God. And so all of this life will be resisting God and living for ourselves. You need to be set free by Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. All right? Romans 10, or Mark 10, 45, a beautiful verse. You need to get that down. And so bottom line again, the Son of Man is coming in power, but first he went to the cross. The cross, then the crown. And that is the very life that Jesus is inviting us into. 
Like, I, I, I honestly, wouldn't it be easier? Like, wouldn't it have been cool if it would have just been Jesus goes to the cross and we wait in the car? And then, like, he, when he dies and rises again from the dead, he comes and just gives us all crowns and just goes, now just go, and it would be so easy and just... But this is the Christian life. Remember, part of the Gospel of Mark is he's training these guys how to live the Christian life, how to, what it means to follow him. And so, yes, there will be a crown. Yes, it is amazing to live for Jesus. But right now, you are going to the cross. Remember, he's already told us to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is, this is not what the world does. This is not where your heart naturally goes. But Jesus says, you watch me and then let me empower you to live a totally different path to greatness. It's going to cost you. You're going to go, you're going to serve. You're going to, you're going to be a slave. People aren't going to treat you right. People aren't going to understand you. People aren't going to thank you. Um, But you just lay down your life and you watch, you watch how your life opens up. You know, if this were horrible, uh, Jesus would have done that. He would have said, you guys wait in the car. Let me go to the cross. Like, but he loves us. He's inviting us into the best kind of life we can live. It reminds me, there's a guy that wrote a lot of the New Testament named Paul. And if you want to look at a life of somebody who got this and then laid down his life so that others could meet Jesus, the Apostle Paul is like amazing. So, so one time he said to a friend of his named Timothy, it was a younger man that he was pouring his life into, He said, um, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Like the way that's worded, it almost doesn't make sense. It's like, jump in, the water's fine. Like it has that tone to it, but uh, the tagline is not the water's fine. It's like, jump in and suffer. Like this is amazing. This is the way to live your life. Like this is, you got a short life. God's God's invested in you. He's wired you. He's gifted you. He's given you things. Now, what are you going to do? Which path of greatness are you going to take? And Jesus and Paul and the gospel and this whole gospel, Mark, is calling us that the best way to live your life is to lay it down, to go for the cross and then receive the crown. And so that's a completely different way than the world is going to invite you to live. That's a completely different way as you just look and observe, how's this world living? It is not cross than crown. It's just give me the crown, give me the crown, give me the crown. So um, listen to this. Paul said this. Um, the guy who just said that lived this life so well and humbled himself so well. Philippians 2, 3 to 5, he said, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. If you stop those two verses again, make it sound like go try harder, go do this. But verse 5 is key. He said, have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Like when you embrace Jesus and what he did for you on the cross to forgive you and set you free, then Jesus gives you a whole new mindset, like a whole new way to live. So you're living for others and not yourself. Like this, this mindset is yours in Christ Jesus. If you start living this, this you know, less traveled path toward greatness, it won't be because you figured it out and you toughed it out and you're doing it. It's going to be because Jesus gave you a whole new life a whole new way to live, a whole new mindset for how to live. And then you will step into the life that he lived, the life that Paul lived, the life that that God is inviting us to live, that there's a cross and then the crown. And so just to make sure we get this, just to make sure we get this. So basically I'm saying if you know Jesus, if Jesus has saved you, then you then he begins to walk with you on this whole new path toward greatness. So just to make sure we get this, I love how chapter 10 ends. 
And at first it seems a little bit odd, because now suddenly there's a story about a blind man. Okay, but what's really, this is really cool. If you look at, it's kind of nice to study through a whole book of the Bible like we're doing. Because in Mark 8 through 10, three different times, Jesus lays out who he is and why he came. Who he is, why he came. This third time is the, is the clearest, all right? But it's really interesting is that those three times that Jesus talked about who he is, why he came, are bookended by two stories of blind guys, okay? So I don't think that's a coincidence. The first blind guy was the guy that Jesus, you know, healed, and he's kind of like, well, I kind of see things, and they're kind of coming together, and then he could see. So now we're going to another blind guy, and it's this blind man who's going to help us understand. He's going to help us see who Jesus really is, and then how do we really get set free to live a life that's truly great? It's going to take a blind man to show us what the Pharisees, the rich young ruler, and, and the disciples completely missed. It's kind, of, it's kind of cool. So uh, Mark 10, verse uh, 46. This is one of my favorite Bible guys. So his name is Bartimaeus. And what's interesting is Bartimaeus is one of the only, I think he's the only guy Jesus healed that we know his name. So it should tell you something. There's something that stands out about this guy named Bartimaeus. So Jesus just had that little time out, talked to everybody what true greatness is. Then they start walking through Jericho, going to Jerusalem, about 18 more miles to go. And they come across a beggar on the side of the road, and he's blind, and his name is Bartimaeus. Verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. Like, now they're changing, right? First they're telling him to shut up. Now they're saying, Hey, babe, dude, man, you're the man, he's calling you. So crowds can be fickle. Just watch that, okay? So, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, we'll come back to this. Look what he said. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, and he followed Jesus on the way. This guy was stuck. Like, this guy was blind. There was no social network at that time to care for him. His, his living ba- was based totally on would, would bypassers be generous with him, with him? Would they throw him a few coins? That's how he lived day to day. He was desperate. And so, but somehow, in spite of being blind, his heart and his ears were open, and he knew a lot about Jesus. He knew Jesus was the son of David. That was another name for the coming Messiah. He knew Jesus of Nazareth. So when he heard Jesus was coming, man, this was his only hope. This was his ticket out, right? And so if you're blind and you can't do anything, you just yell. And that's what he did. Even everybody's saying, shut up. He yelled even louder and he got Jesus' attention. I, ho- I hope you notice the contrast. Again, this story isn't an accident. It's well-placed. J- James and John, I mean, it's a very similar statement. Like Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? He said that to James and John. Now he's saying it to the blind guy. James and John asked for glory. Bartimaeus asked for mercy. He needed help. Um, Totally different requests. James and John wanted to be number one and number two. Um, Bartimaeus just wanted to see. He believed Jesus. And he just wanted to see, have mercy on me. So that cry for mercy, as busy as Jesus was, as focused as he was, intent on getting to Jerusalem to get on with his mission. And that cry for mercy just stopped him in his tracks. And he turned 
and he talked to Bartimaeus. I mean, Bartimaeus, the only thing he owned in his life was probably that cloak. And when he heard that Jesus called him, do you see what he did with his cloak? He just chucked it. I think, I mean, that's like all he had. That's all he owned. I think he knew he was going to be able to find it later because he was going to be able to see. <laughs> he wasn't concerned that it was over there. He just went towards this voice. And after he healed him and Jesus said, you know what, you can go your own way, guess what Bartimaeus did? He, he followed Jesus to Jerusalem. He, he went, let's go to the cross. Let's go. I think the reason, so remember Peter's the guy that we think wrote the gospel of Mark, that Mark was the guy that was a close friend with Peter and just kind of wrote down Peter's notes for him. So the reason why that name Bartimaeus stuck is that I, I, I think for 18 miles, Bartimaeus, you just couldn't shut that man up. Like he's just going on and on about how awesome Jesus was and I was just a poor blind man and then he heard my voice and now I can see. Do you guys know who Jesus is? Do you see how awesome Jesus is? Do you see like so... So I, I think they had no problem remembering his name, Bartimaeus. And I'll just, I'm reading between the lines here, but there's times in spiritual leadership, maybe there's times as a parent where you're just constantly giving it out that when, you, when your guys aren't getting it, like the, you just laid out your heart and your 12 guys are still fighting about who's the best. I think God the Father said, let me just roll Bartimaeus Jesus' way. Like, I think he just needed that encouragement for 18 miles. Jesus is awesome. He's the man. He's got so all of that. So what a gift that man was to Jesus. And so, but what he models so well for us, you guys, is there can't be a shred of us reading Mark 10, 32 to 45, saying, no, you just got to go try this harder. No, we need the posture of Bartimaeus. Like, I, I can't. Father, have mercy on me. I am so sinful. I just, man, the things I do in my marriage every week, the things I do to my kids every week, the things I do in my relationships every week, like I just crave worldly greatness. God, have mercy on me and set me free to live for what is truly great. Like Bartimaeus is just showing us, how do you walk that path? You're not going to do it on your own. You're only going to do that as you cry out for mercy. And then Jesus' greatness is deployed in our lives. Bartimaeus could see our eyes are open so we can see how awesome Jesus is. And then when he calls us to serve, that is a beautiful way to live our lives. And so let me go pastoral here just for a little bit to wrap up. As so far, it's been a narrative, and we've just kind of told the story and made points. Let me get practical here for a little bit, okay? So I, you, I hope you are seeing two completely different paths of how to be great. And I can promise you that if you go the Jesus route, Again, like I said earlier, your, your marriages will change. Your friendships will change. Your relationship with the church will change. Your influence on other people will change. Your neighborhood will change. Your job will change. Um, because it's a completely different way to live your life. And every time you lay down your life, uh, you put on display a much more powerful display of, of what Jesus has done for you. You are sharing the gospel as you go and you lay down your life. Because that's the only way a human heart can, can live like a slave and a servant. It's going to be if you've been set free and liberated by Jesus. Please don't go and try harder. Just go home and cry out for mercy that Jesus will set you free uh, so that you can live this way. So um, I'm going to quote John Stott twice in, one, twice in one sermon. He also said this, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is is our greatest friend. So if that's true, um, some ways we can cry out for mercy and show Jesus we want to live a different way is to build into your life some rhythms of humility. Why don't you jot a couple of these down? What are some daily rhythms of humility? 
Number one, I'd put, at, let me give you two, two short but very powerful books. They're both titled Humility. Okay, that's simple. One is written by C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney, one of my favorite top ten books. Okay, Humility, C.J. Mahaney. And I just read one that's probably climbing into the top ten, but by Andrew Murray, same title, Humility. All right? And when you read both those books and get some practical insights about how do you develop rhythms of humility, both men will point you here. Reflect on the wonder of the cross. Like if there's a regular time in your week, I would suggest every morning where you are at the foot of the cross, like there's no way you can sit at the foot of the cross and see Jesus there for your sin and just walk away proud. Like, oh yeah, like, no, that's, that's, that's astonishingly humbling to realize that the Son of Man was there for me in my place, okay? So that's amazingly humbling, but it's also powerfully encouraging when I realize that he loved me that much, that he was there for me, all right? So I am so messed up that it took the Son of Man to die for me, that's humbling, but to realize that he did that out of his love for me is incredibly empowering. So you reflect on the wonder of the cross and make sure that in, in your rhythm throughout your week, there are times where you're expressing gratitude to God for what he's done. I have a moleskin. I, take, I read the Bible. I take a few notes. I write a few prayers out. One thing I try to do is just write out some praises and things that I'm thankful for every day. It's an ungrateful heart that begins to breed pride and self-sufficiency, all right? So go, go practical with a rhythm of gratitude to God. A lot of times you'll hear me talk about the need for rhythm in your life with the spiritual disciplines. So I mean things like reading the Bible. Reading the Bible regularly is you reminding yourself you don't have this life figured out. And so you submit to what God says about how you live. So reading the Bible is an act, is a rhythm of, of humility in your life. Praying is the same thing. Instead of me taking these five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, and just cranking through my day, I'm admitting I can't do this. And so I'm going to go humble, and God, I'm going to give these minutes to you, and I'm going to pray. Here's a couple other things. Um, Andrew Murray will say in his book, Humility, that you cannot say that I'm humble before God if you're not humble before people. The way you prove, uh, demonstrate that you're really humble before God is it'll flesh out in your humility towards others. So here's some practical things about being humble towards others. Um, <laughs> how about um, being an encourager? Like to be one of the first ones to notice when other people are doing things well, and you're the first one to tell them that, or even better, the first one to publicly say what a good job they're doing. So encouraging others. Another practical one in our relationships would be to invite correction. Invite correction. So this would be awesome with a spouse, with a roommate, with a close friend, um, with a community group, that you at times just say, could you guys you guys have access to my life. Like, if you see anything that I'm not doing, could you please tell me? Like, something I use with Lori sometimes is these three questions. What are some things I should keep doing, stop doing, or start doing? Maybe that's kind of a gentler way to get into it. So, but in case you didn't know, the people around you probably have some good inf input for you. It's just that either you've not given that permission or when it's been given before, you shut it down. Okay, so, so going humble is to invite correction into your life. And can I just say that this church, when you walk in here on a Sunday, um, and anytime you lay down your life and go this path of greatness, you are putting on display the gospel. You are putting on the display of the true greatness that Jesus Christ 
went first with, when he took the cross and the crown. And so every time you serve, it makes people scratch their heads. Go, where'd you get that? Why are you doing that? And you're pointing back to the reality that you've been set free from living for yourself. And now you're set free to serve. You're pointing them ultimately to Jesus. And so what's beautiful is when you come in here every weekend, you are surrounded by people who are doing this. I mentioned ushers. I mentioned worship team. I mentioned some of the tech team. And we have people teaching other people's kids this morning, like giving up their time for that. We have people that are going to be hosting community groups this week or a part of community groups. That's a sacrifice of time. That's a beautiful thing. Um, This week I was at Faith Academy. And then once again, just saw another whole wave of people who volunteer there that I didn't know. Serving lunch, mentoring kids, uh, those kind of things. There's a single gal that I know who for many years has longed to be a mom. I think she'd be an amazing mom. Um, but she's not pouting and like, well, I'm not married. So, um, she, I see her constantly caring for other people's kids. She's now set up to be, is it called a safe home or something like that, where people that have foster kids, she can watch them for them. And she's constantly laying down her life. I just see a whole group right here, not to brag on you guys, but I'm going to brag on you guys. So there's a group around here called Grad Group. I know that a lot of you guys are a part of, um, single adults in our church that I honestly, I, every time I turn around, these guys are serving us somewhere um, at, at different things. And that's beautiful the way you guys do that. And just, again, I look throughout this church. I heard stories this week of people that just had a baby and meals are just coming to their house and they can't believe it. You know, and so there's the, the so many ways you guys put this on display that when you do that, you're just ultimately pointing people back to the ultimate greatest one that ever lived and that he laid down his life for us. And you're just, you're putting that on display by how you serve. And so I got to caution us as, as a pastor that, and I, I can see this even in my own life, that there's a tendency in our culture now because of all of our technology and all of our gadgets. And it's something like Benny said earlier in the service that we can go home, just close that garage door and just kind of wall in and just kind of be ourselves, have a very small group of people around us. I really believe that Jesus is calling us to break out of that and to lay down our lives for others. And that you'll see, you know, the more you step in, the more you serve, empowered by Jesus, the more fulfilling this life really is. I, I honestly say the happiest people I know, the most joyful people I know, are, are, are serving, are serving. And, and Jesus was right. Like, Paul was right when he said to Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Like, get in here. The water is awesome. Let's go. Let's live this way. So um, let me just say this to, um, to wrap up. We have, there are places where we still need people to serve. Like, it's probably constant in a church that's doing as many things as we are. And so I speak to those of you that have maybe been on the sideline, or you're new, or you're saying, yeah, how could I serve? How could I step in here? Tomorrow you're going to get an email from the church that could just lay out some really practical ways that you could take first steps to serve. Um, we have, a, for example, we have a team of servants here that every week set up communion. When we have communion, um, they clean the kitchen for us. They do some very practical things, and they just need people to come and help them out. Like, that's an easy first step, all right? Um, there's needs in teaching children. There's needs with Easter coming up, for example. We try to, with multiple services, we try to encourage everybody to attend one and then serve at one. 
And so we're, you're going to, in that email, you're going to see ways that you can help out with Easter. But my, I'm not beating you with a stick here. I'm encouraging you. Like a lot of times the way a church begins to feel more like your family is when you step in and start serving. And then you start meeting people. And hey, this is pretty cool. And hey, I'm going to serve again. And I'm going to, the next thing you know, God just keeps leading you. And you are servant leading in this church. And God is using you and you're changing lives. That's an awesome thing. Okay, so, so watch for that email tomorrow. If our emails go to your spam, check your spam tomorrow. Pull that out, look at it, and jump in, okay? Because this is a beautiful thing that Jesus is inviting us into. So let me pray. Let me wrap us up here and pray for us. So, Jesus, you lay down your life to set free uh, a bunch of people that tend to just live for themselves and do what they want and do our own thing, and you're inviting us to a whole different way of life. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for everybody in this room. Jesus, if anybody here doesn't get this, help them understand that you died for them. May they be just like Bartimaeus and just cry out, have mercy on me. And I thank you that that cry of desperation always turns your head. So Jesus, start there. If there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, may they cry for mercy and understand that you have saved them, rescued them by what you did for them on the cross. And then those of us that have been set free, Jesus, continue to invite us into the cross before the crown. The life that you lived is the best way to live our lives. So use every life, God, every man, every woman, every child, every student in this room that knows you. God, use us, set us free to point people to the gospel by laying down our lives for them. Yep, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. In your great name, amen.